We're going to learn everything you ever wanted to know and things you probably don't about Lutherans tonight. Now, again, part of the reason I like to say this almost every week is because we have people that tune into our podcast and that just listen, but they may not listen in order and they may only hear me once and they might say once is enough. But I'm painting with a mighty big brush. And so some of the things I say about our Lutheran friends won't apply to all Lutherans, won't apply to all Lutheran churches. In fact, Lutheranism in America right now may have some of the largest gaps between adherents. You've got Lutherans that are far, far, far left today, theologically. I'm going to show you that with an article that came out just two days ago. You've got Lutherans that are actually far, far right and that we would find a lot of agreement with in our fundamental beliefs. And so I want to try to be gracious, but I'm going to paint with a brush that I think is accurate of most who call themselves Lutheran. So we're going to talk about the Lutheran Church, of course, the founding um, of the Lutheran Church. Martin Luther, that's not a shocker, right? He nails his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. He's challenging uh, Catholic teaching. Much of his challenge centered around indulgences. How can you sell forgiveness? How can you say if you'll give more to the church, then you'll be more forgiven? Or granny who's in purgatory will be more forgiven? How can you do that? Lutheran was a Catholic priest. He had no intention of saying, hey, come follow me and you'll be Lutherans. That was not his goal. He had no concept of, of creating this kind of movement that we call the Protestant Reformation, but it happened. And so when we go back to our timeline, we see how we have this branch the Great Schism, right? After about a thousand years into the birth of the church. And then we have the Lutheran Church being birthed. And we have 1517, October 31. That's kind of the date that we think of. Again, this statement, Protestant Reformation, begins with Martin Luther. Uh, kind of, sort of. But there are a lot of things swirling around. Because history is linear, there's a start, in the beginning God created, and there'll be a consummation, so it's not just cyclical, it is linear, however, it's not this linear, right? There are multiple branches, and things intersect, and they cross, and so it's not exactly this clean. And so when we think about history, these different movements and things that are happening, Luther's not the only one that's concerned about the Catholic Church. But he is very vocal. He's very well-written, very well-spoken. He's a great leader. And so people look to Luther and they say, okay, this guy is saying what we believe. This guy, we can get behind this protest. And then you have other groups branching out. Uh, you've heard of Evangelical Free or EV Free. We have some Good EV free churches in our area, very uh, much larger and more well known a little north from here, Chicagoland and those kinds of areas. But you have different forms, different branches. Let's go back and talk about the Protestant Reformation for just a, movement, just a moment, just to make sure we're clear. This movement originally was calling for the reform of the doctrines, preaching, and rights of the Catholic Church, and it's ignited, it's one of the main sparks through the work of Luther. It results in the secession of many churches from the Catholic Church. And that did happen fairly rapidly. Although most of these guys were saying, wait a minute, we don't want to leave. We want to be a part of the, the mother church. But the Roman church at times reacted quite violently. Remember what I told you about Anabaptists. We'll get into that a few weeks down the road. 
But all of the church bodies profiled in this presentation now are Protestant, or they're most often considered Protestant. Some of them wouldn't like to be called Protestant, but they are. They're, they're part of that tradition, except for those first two that we've spent time looking at. Um, the Anglican Church, and we may get to it tonight. I'm ready to get to it if we, get, if we have time. The Anglican Church really still aligns herself more closely with the Catholic Church. And either tonight or in two weeks, we'll get back to it. Next week, we have something very, very special. One of our guys on the team is being ordained. It's going to be a special service. We'll have guests in, special music. Uh, Matt Mercer. So the Mercer family will be front and center. We'll be celebrating his ordination. And by then, Frozen Junior will be over. So we'll have all this back. Actually, this will be back to normal by Sunday. So, And this Sunday, we start a brand new journey, folks, with First John. And I am... Just finished the message. I'm super excited about um, this start. We have brand new service times. Anybody remember when they are? 9 o'clock, 10.30. Pretty easy. 9 o'clock, 10.30. If you come early, great. Get a good seat. We had a great crowd Sunday. It was the largest, other than Easter, the largest number of worshipers we've had since COVID began. So a great group. People making decisions. We got people to celebrate baptism this coming week. Um, God is on the move. As Frank said, the Lord is doing some incredible things. I'm glad to be a part of it. So I hope that you'll be here Sunday, all right? So that's my commercial. Now, what we have here, for remember, 1517, Luther puts up his 95 theses, these 95 points of contention with what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church. Now what we have is the Augsburg Confession. I'm going to jump forward and I'm going to come back. What is a confession? Confession is a document stating what a particular group believes, what, a, what, a, uh, what are our tenets of faith. So for us at, at Grace, we have two primary documents, in addition to, of course, just saying we believe the Bible. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is an accurate synopsis, a representation of what we believe. And we just adopted the Nashville Statement 2017. So if you take those two things together and you say, okay, what do we fundamentally believe? Those would be two guiding documents. So I, as a daddy, know that my kids are going to be learning in accordance with and not contrary to those documents. So when you've got a new group forming, you really need to clarify, okay, what is it that we believe? And so as we go back, there's this Augsburg Confession. It comes 13 years after what we normally consider the spark or the birth of the Protestant Reformation, but what is it? So I've got a copy of it in my hands, and basically it is a series of articles, okay, a series of sections, 21 articles, the first 21 outline what these reformers believed were the most important teachings of what would become Lutheranism. They based those on the Bible. So articles like number three and number four delineate the doctrines of the deity of Christ and justification by faith alone, not works. So let me give you an example. Man cannot be justified before God through our own abilities. We're wholly reliant on Jesus Christ for reconciliation with God. Many would say that is the Lutheran doctrine upon which the whole church, the whole Lutheran church, rises or falls. So the difference there is you, you are not justified by your faith in Christ plus the Catholic church. You are not justified by the traditions of the church and keeping the sacraments. You are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. The just shall live by faith. Remember, it started in Habakkuk, but Luther picked up on it from Romans. 
Other things would be like Article 6. Lutherans believe that the good deeds of Christians are the fruits of faith and salvation, not a price paid for them. So you're beginning to see a shift from what we've been learning in the Catholic and Orthodox traditions, okay? And so this confession is very, very important. Now, what's interesting about it, though, is that the end of it, so you have these first 21 articles, this is what we believe, but it actually is 28 articles. The last seven articles of the, and Augsburg is just a place in Germany, all of this would have been originally in German. But Augsburg, where this was finalized and put together and approved, the last seven of the articles have to do with what they called abuses corrected. Abuses corrected. So, one of the things would be Article 23. Lutherans permit their clergy to enter the institution of marriage for the reasons that the early church bishops were married that God blesses marriage as an order of creation. And that's true because Eve was called Adam's wife in Genesis 2. And because marriage and procreation is the natural outlet for human sexual desire. That's a major break with the Catholic Church. And I praise God for that part of the Protestant Reformation. Um, I'll just be honest with you. I would have rejected the call. <laughs> I'm just going to be straight because of my sweetheart. Um, Listen to this. This is super important. The very last article, Article 28. The only power given to priests or bishops is the power offered through Scripture to preach, teach, and administer the sacraments. Now, this is so important when you think about the Roman Catholic Church and the power she's exerted and the papal authority that has been exerted over governments through the years. Constantine, if you go all the way back into the 4th century A.D. and, and forward... The powers given to the clergy in issues of government or the military are granted and respected only through the civil means. They are not civil rulers of governments and the military by divine right. That is the exact opposite of what the Catholic Church took up. So if you still, oh, I kind of like this. I could get right up on y'all. This is great. So, <laughs> I made them nervous. I'm going to back up. So, if you think about it, that says a lot. It says that this authority that you claim to have over the government, not true. We don't buy it. The clergy is now, if they're civilly connected, so if I'm a pastor but I also do my civil duty and I vote and I get involved and maybe, you know, I've, been, I've, I've, I've worked with governmental stuff. I've been a parliamentarian before. When I was in North Carolina, I served as a parliamentarian. Um, I happen to know Robert's rules pretty good, so I was tapped to be a parliamentarian, and, and that was fun for politicians that, that got out of line, and you got to say as the parliamentarian, I'm sorry, you're out of order, sit down. That's always fun. And so they're not saying that's a problem, but they're saying you as clergy don't automatically by your office have a right to rule. That's not what the church is all about. And so this is a very important confession, the Augsburg Confession. It really sets things out for Lutherans and says, this is who we are and how we're different from the Catholic Church. Okay, so how many are there? Um, about, given on what source you use, about 80 million adherents worldwide. That's a lot of people that are Lutheran. And about 6 to 7 million in the USA. Now again, when you think about this number, there is an absolutely enormous scale absolutely enormous. The gulf, we are much, 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 much closer 
to conservative Lutherans of, say, the Missouri Synod. I'll explain in a little bit. We're much closer to conservative Lutherans than we would be liberal Baptists in our core beliefs. We're just much, much closer line. And the two types of Lutherans you could find on either end of the scale could not, literally could not be further apart. I'll explain that a little bit more with the article that just has come out. But you have Lutherans coupled in, in synods or groups of churches. Sometimes that's sort of regional. A lot of times, though, it may have been regional, i.e. the Missouri Synod at one time, but now it's much more widespread. So what are, what are the fundamental beliefs of these 80 million people and the 6 to 7 million in the United States. And again, to give you some perspective, when I say Lutheran, six to seven million in the U.S., Southern Baptist alone, just our denomination, not all Baptists, but just Southern Baptist is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 15 million, supposedly, in the United States. So, yes, it's a large group, but when you compare it to some of these others we're going to look at, it's not nearly the largest in our country. It is a large group, though, uh, worldwide. So let's look at this. Scripture alone is the authoritative witness to the gospel. When you study Lutheran theology, though, they'll often say things like this, but some parts are more directly or fully authoritative. That's where we get into some wiggle room. This group may say, well, all of it's more authoritative. And some may say, well, we don't really go by that anymore. That's dated. That's where we'll see this come out in a few moments. But notice this. For the first time, the standard Protestant canon, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books are accepted. That's exactly what you have in your hands tonight. Conservatives within the Lutheran church uh, view Scripture as inerrant. I would agree with that, meaning just without error. It's used by evangelicals with reference to the complete trustworthiness of the Bible in all matters to which it speaks. So whatever the Bible says, that's truth. Now, let's talk about this word for one moment because I want to make sure we define our terms as we go. This word has become really uh, stretched and sort of stretched beyond what it really means. Let's talk about what an evangelical actually is because for some reason that word's taken almost a negative connotation. Well, if you align this way, you must be one of those evangelicals. Well, let's stop for just a minute and look at it. What word do you see right in the middle of the word evangelical? Take off the first couple letters, take off the last. What word's tucked in the middle very nicely? Good. Angel. Look at this. Angel. Angel in Greek, angelos, means messenger. Very simple. Messenger. That's what angel literally translates. You add a special ending to it, and you change it from messenger to message. I'll put this ending on it. In the Greek, you have a word that's actually E-U, and it means good. I'm obviously not writing the Greek letters, but when we anglicize it, when we put it in English, E-U means good. It could mean great. just means thumbs up, good. So that becomes... E-V, and we add that back, and what we have actually is sharing the good news, 
the good message. That's what it means. So evangelicals, if you strip away all the political connotation of this evangelical word, it means those who actually believe in the nugget of gospel truth that says, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried and raised again the third day according to the Scriptures, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man, woman, boy, girl comes to the Father but by him, that he is the way to be in a right relationship with God. Evangelism, evangelicals say this is the core message. There may be other things we're going to talk about. There may be social justice things. There may be, you know, helping people be warm and filled. But our primary tenet, and there's a word for this in English, is the gospel. Gospel means good news. Okay? So, this would be an evangelical group for the most part, but now we got to see where are we going to begin differing. Well, let's see where we're alike. Yes or no, their view of God is one creator and Lord of all, existing eternally is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you agree, disagree? Absolutely, that's true. And this is one of the representations of Trinity. So we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we're not modalist. We say all of them are God. Father's God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God. But the Father's not the Holy Spirit, who's not the Son, who's not the Father. So, for instance, our H2O illustration always breaks down. Because hip, cool pastors want to say, now if we freeze it, it's still H2O. And if we have it in liquid form, it's still H2O. And if we, if we boil it, it's steam, but it's still H2O. Problem. You can't have ice, water, and steam all at the same place at the same time with the same H2O. That's where it breaks down. Oh, Mike, you know what I'm talking about. It's modalism. It's heresy. T.D. Jakes is a well-known modalist. Stephen Furtick is a well-known modalist. This is not biblical truth, and this is not what Lutherans say. It is not what Baptists historically have said. God is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And it's not just the way I relate to him. It is God being three in one. I've actually done a series of teaching on that, so I'll not rehash it all. But Lutherans are Trinitarians in the same way that Baptists are Trinitarians. And even though you've got some very popular preachers out there and very well-known preachers, they have confused some of this. And they teach illustrations that break down if you press them. I'm not saying the H2O illustration is not helpful in some ways, but I think those things can do more harm than good. There's really only one good mathematical illustration, and it would be this one. And it's not one plus one plus one, but one times one times one is one. The essence of all persons are the same. It's God, God, God. But this is not this, nor this, nor that. So, Trinitarian, yes, Lutherans have that. We're, we're in agreement. Now, let's go through these quickly. Is Jesus the eternal Son incarnate? Oh, yes, he is. Is he fully God and fully man? Yes, he is. Is he conceived and born of the Virgin Mary? Yeah, remember, not only is Jesus virginally conceived, he's virginally born. Meaning that Joseph did not know his wife. There's no chance that Joseph came into the picture and actually Mary was pregnant by him. The Bible is very clear on that. He did not lay with his wife until after. Now, some traditions have said she's a virgin perpetually. You don't see that here. He died on the cross for our sins, rose bodily from the grave, ascended into heaven, We'll come again in glory to judge us all. We're all together there, all of those fundamental tenets. Now, this is where we're going to have to look very carefully. 
We are saved by grace alone when God imputes to us his gift of righteousness through faith alone. That's sola fide. We've talked about that as one of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. In Christ who died for our sins. Yes, no, maybe. I'm 100% okay with that. That's great. That's a great way to say it. By grace alone, when God, he's giving us this gift of his righteousness. Imputed righteousness is a biblical concept. Now watch this. This is really important. Good works are the inevitable result of true faith, but in no way the basis of our right standing before God. Yes, no? Yes. Folks, if you live long enough, thief on the cross didn't live long enough. If you live long enough, the Bible guarantees there's going to be fruit. There's going to be more fruit. There's going to be much fruit. There's going to be fruit that remains. What we've done is we've created this false gospel of easy believism that says just believe, just confess Christ, just tell somebody, get baptized, and then whatever you do is up to you. Not a healthy doctrine. The Bible says if you're transformed, metamorphosized by Christ, there is something inevitable that happens. It's, it's a new person, a new creature. In fact, even when Jesus tells the parable of the soils, he says, look, they all kind of look alike in the beginning, but what happens? This one fades away, and that one gets choked out, and the birds snatch that one. But of that one, that good soil, what happens? It produces some 30 or 60 or 100-fold. So I absolutely agree with this word because I agree that faith works, and I think Lutherans have gotten that absolutely right but let's keep going because surely we differ about something. All right, after death, this is where it gets a little weird. The souls of believers uh, upon dying go immediately to be with Christ. And it, well, No, this is not where it gets weird. It's the next slide. I'm ahead of myself. The souls of believers upon dying go immediately to be with Christ. And at Christ's return, their bodies are raised to immortal, eternal life. Yes, no, Maybe. Yeah, actually, this is a really good way of saying it. The immaterial me goes to be with the Lord. I'm absent from my body. I'm present with the Lord. But when Christ actually returns, and I would, use, I would prefer to use the word rapture, because rapture and return are different. In rapture, the Lord is in the air. We go up to meet him. In return, he comes to the earth. We come down to rule and reign with him. Because I believe in a thousand-year reign. I believe in actual millennium. I'm a literalist wherever the Bible allows me to be a literalist. So, the souls of the wicked begin suffering immediately in hell. There's a little contention about that, even among other evangelical groups. Well, wait a minute. Is there a holding? Do they actually go? I do actually believe they're immediately separated from the Lord. I do actually believe. Now, I do say there's still judgment coming. And there are things about this I don't fully understand. But I believe we're either with the Lord or we're separated from the Lord in hell. So I can actually affirm this, and I do believe this suffering happens immediately. But there are judgments to follow. All right, the church. This is where it gets, the, the wording here gets a little interesting. The church is the congregation of believers, though mixed with the lost. So I guess the reference there would be kind of wheat and tares in which the gospel is taught and the sacraments, this is where we're going to start differing, rightly administered. I'll explain that in a moment when I get to the sacraments screen. Is the church 
Now let's be careful how I say this. Is the church lost people? Bob says no. Is the church role potentially got some lost people? Okay, and this is where we got to differentiate. The church role and God's role are not the same role. When I pastored my first church of 11 years and had a cemetery, this was a hot-button topic. People never wanted to be removed from our church role because if they were, they lost their free cemetery plot. And I know this is going to shock you that some Baptists don't act nice all the time. But the equation for some over those years was that if you take my name off your role, you've taken my name off his role. We had to help people understand, wait a minute. This role and God's role aren't the same role. You can be on one without the other. And the reality is, while I agree with Billy Graham's assessment from over a half a century ago that the church may have a lot of lost folks on her role, I don't agree that that's the real church. I believe the real church is saved folks, really saved folks. Other people are watching. Other people may be on the roll, but I would not call them the church. Y'all follow what I'm saying? It's a differentiation. I think it's the same one you're making, Bob. The real church is real believers through all the ages Men, women, boys, and girls that love Jesus. And whether they're on the grace role or not, whether they're on another church role or not, that's a secondary or tertiary matter. It's not the primary matter. Okay? But we're responsible for our church who the real believers. And we want to make sure that there's no unregenerate church membership. We absolutely want to ensure that everybody on the grace role really knows Jesus. So we want to make sure they're counseled well. They go through a class of confirmation, not confirmation like the Catholic confirmation, but to know that they know that they know that Jesus is their Lord and their Savior. And all believers are priests. Now this is radically different from the Catholic and Orthodox tradition. All believers are priests in that they have direct access to God, yes or no. Absolutely yes, man. This is why I'm Baptist, and I love congregational uh, uh, governance. I love the polity of a Baptist church because it says pastors are called to have vision and lead, but it's the whole congregation that speaks into things, the whole congregation that knows Jesus, all the true church that knows the Lord speaks in. All right, that's good. Now, all ministers are pastors, but some serve as bishops. This is where we get to differ. So the problem when we begin to play with words, elder, pastor, bishop, shepherd, overseer, and when we be, apostle, when we begin to separate words, then we, we play semantic games. The reality is very, very simple in the Bible. Matt and I were just going over this. Actually, Cindy and I and Matt and Angie were just going over 1 Timothy 3. He who desires the position of bishop desires a good work. That's how it's translated in the New King James. But elsewhere in the Bible, that very same word is translated pastor. Pastor, bishop, elder, overseer, shepherd, or under-shepherd, all of them are translated in different ways. So presbyteros, episcopos, and poimen, the three Greek words used biblically, have, they're, they're talking about the same person. And yet in some of our more liturgical churches, you get these separations that I just can't find biblically. I can't see them. I don't see them. So this is a statement that I'm going to disagree with. Because a bishop implies somebody over a group of pastors. And I just don't see that biblically. There's also a strange thing within Lutheranism that I, I've struggled with called apostolic succession. 
Um, historically, they've rejected it, although sometimes you'll find that certain Lutheran groups still kind of toy with this. Apostolic succession is this doctrine that there's this unbroken line of succession from the apostles of Jesus to their bishops today. Again, historically, most Lutherans have rejected. Some have said, no, we still have apostolic succession. But only bishops in proper succession may ordain priests authorized to perform the sacraments. What's the big deal? What, why do they say you have to do this a certain way? Or what's up with the sacraments? Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Let's look at what they say about that. Agree or disagree with the first line on that slide? Okay, baptism is necessary for salvation. Yes or no? No. That's called baptismal regeneration. It means if I'm not baptized... I'm not saved. Do we have biblical precedent that says that's not true? Yeah, the thief on the cross is the, the quintessential example. But there are many other examples that actually show that belief in baptism can be two different things. In fact, John was doing a different type of baptism than Jesus, okay? The, the pre cross, um, a pre-resurrection baptism, pre-Pentecost baptism is different. Jews had been baptizing for years. You can go to the caves of Qumran. If you go with us to the Holy Land, we'll go to Qumran. You'll see the baptismal font. I've told you, when they wrote the name uh, Yahweh, they wouldn't write it, but they would write Adonai. When they wrote it, every single time they wrote the name of the Lord, they laid the pen down, they changed, they, they got into a robe, they went down one side, up the other. Honey, you remember that? They, they baptized themselves every single time, and that's different than our Christian baptism. But nowhere can we find evidence that if a person is not baptized, they're not saved. But in the Lutheran tradition... Baptismal regeneration is very, very important. Um, in the, the, the act of baptism, grace is given, whether you're an infant or an adult. Again, the problem with that is that would appear to me to conflict with what, they, what we said earlier when it's not by works. That would appear to me that it is, is putting a work into the line of my salvation, Right? This one's really interesting because we're not, we, want to, we don't want to do transubstantiation because remember Lutheran, Luther's taking a break from the Catholic Church, taking a turn. So rather than um, transubstantiation, they actually use a different term, consubstantiation. What's the difference? Um, trans, like if you said transatlantic, means a cross, a, a transfer. Think about transfer. So to the Catholic the bread becomes the body. It still looks like bread, but it literally becomes the body. The wine becomes the blood. Okay, Even though you could do a chemical analysis on it, it would be the same. They still say, no, this becomes that, this becomes that. A Lutheran says, no, it's not trans, it's con. Con is the prefix for with. So what that means is, the bread is still bread, but now it's with the body. The body and the bread are there together. That's why it doesn't look or taste different. The, the wine is with the blood. So it's more of a with, not a transformation. So you have a different understanding, but it still means that they take this. Um, it, it's not where we would say um, it's not just a representation. It's much more than just a representation. Um, it truly becomes 
the body and blood. But simultaneously, it remains the bread and the wine. So the elements are, are merged. They're with one another, consubstantiation, with substance. All right, the church's liturgy, their order, their worship style is similar to Episcopal's. Um, when we get there, which we won't be able to do tonight, when we get there, you'll see a lot of similarity. We're going to talk about King Henry VIII and all kinds of things. Conservative Lutherans generally affirm that God chooses who will be saved before they believe. Now, I'm not going to go down this path necessarily tonight. I've talked about Reformed theology and other things. It's a little different. That's not really a tulip thing, okay? But they generally affirm God chooses, um, elects, all right? Let's do a few other things here. We've got a couple more slides. In 2009, the ELCA, remember that, ELCA, I'm going to come back to it in a moment, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America opened the ministry to gay and lesbian pastors in committed relationships. Okay, that's different. That's very different than the Catholic Church, even where they stand today. It's very different than the Orthodox Church, where they stand today, holistically. So the ELCA um, is mainline. Have you ever heard that mainline denomination? You heard that term before? I'm going to try to explain that to you so that we understand what we mean by that. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is the most doctrinally conservative group. A friend of mine is actually a pastor, a priest, in that particular line. If you were to ask me, Pastor Bobby, what would be the one group in America that would be most like Southern Baptist in the sense of turning from a potential leftward lean in the 70s and early 80s, what would be, or 60s and 70s, up to the early 80s, what would be the one group in America that would have turned back to the right? And I would say this group right here, that one right there. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is really the only other large group. But listen to me, they're not mainline. I'll explain in a minute. They're not mainline. But the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod took a very clear turn, a swath back to the right. So not all Lutherans believe like what I'm going to tell you in a moment. In 1999, the ELCA approved full communion with the Episcopal Church. So now what you have is, is holding of hands. So in other words, we recognize your people are just like our people, and you'll see how that works next time, not next week, but the week after, you'll see how they hold hands. But what is this mainline thing? What does this mean? Um, so the ELCA, um, they're the mainline group, and I'll explain. I want to read this to you, though, because you need to hear this. This is very interesting. It came out May the 11th. It was yesterday from the Christian Post. The LCA is the largest, even, it's the largest Lutheran group in the country. It's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and it is the mainline group. Watch this. I'll show you this in definition in a moment. Mainline, the one that's been around the longest. For Presbyterians, that would be Presbyterian USA. For Methodists, that would be United Methodist, okay? So they're the ones you would think of. Missouri Synod, not mainline. They come off. SBC is not a mainline denomination. It's not considered mainline. American Baptist would be considered mainline. In fact, I'll go ahead and tell you what they are. 
United Methodist Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA, the Episcopal Church, the American Baptist Church, the United Churches of Christ, the Disciples of Christ. Those are your seven primary mainliners. When you hear about the mainliners, mainlines in large part through the mid-20th century to the end took a very sharp turn left theologically and pragmatically, most of them. The others would include that didn't do that, Quakers, Reformed Church in America, African Methodist Episcopal. They didn't take the same hardcore leftward bent, but they are still considered more mainline. So, the ELCA. So, evangelical. This is why you can't paint everybody with the same brush. They're called evangelicals. Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America had this article two days ago. ELCA becomes first mainline denomination in U.S. to elect transgender bishop. A regional body of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has elected the first openly transgender bishop in the liberal mainline, now you're understanding the, the words, liberal mainline Protestant denominations history. This is the primary line of Lutherans in America. The Reverend Megan Rohrer, who uses pronouns, he, she, asked to be called they and them. So when you refer to this bishop, who's over about 200 Lutheran churches now, she's been voted in over about 200 Lutheran churches, you, you refer to this individual as they, them. I don't know how that works in practice, but um, they were elected Saturday to head, this is going to be the shocker, the California-based ELCA, Sierra Pacific Synod. It's funny that every single week, Cindy and I are welcoming Californians to grace. It's very interesting here lately. She won on the fifth ballot during the online Synod Assembly, receiving 209 votes, defeating Reverend Jeff Johnson of Berkeley, California. She won by two votes. Um, and there are a lot of people within the ELCA both celebrating that and some that are decrying that, as you can imagine. The vote was 209 to 207. So there's a lot of contention in that. That being said, the ELCA is the, the main Lutheran group. It has become extremely liberal in the United States. But it does not represent all Lutherans because mainliners are a Protestant denomination generally originating before 1900, though maybe they've merged and congealed a little bit more recently, from which theologically conservative congregations have separated. Methodists are going, thank you to, I saw her earlier. Somebody told me about the, the thing that's happening in Atlanta with a large Methodist church. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for sharing that with me. It's a fascinating story. Methodists are going through this right now. The United Methodist Church is dealing with this. Presbyterians have dealt with this. Maybe you've heard of Reformed Presbyterians that are quite radically different than Presbyterian USA. So you have the mainline ELCA. When you branch off of the main line and you typically take a right turn, I don't know to you guys what that would look like, but when you typically go more conservative biblically, you're not considered mainline anymore, which is where we fall in as Southern Baptists versus American Baptists. So, 
That's the way I want you to understand that. So when you hear, well, the mainline churches, you might think, oh, that means all Baptists, or that means all Lutherans, or that means all Methodists. Please don't do that, because it would be very, very, very different. There would be some Baptists, for instance, that would be extremely offended to have me in their same line. There would be some Baptists that I would be deeply offensive to for a couple of reasons. This is not a King James Bible. It's a new King James Bible. I actually, I read Greek and Hebrew. That would not, that would be a no-no. I went to seminary. That would be a no-no. You don't do that. I've been told by some within Baptist circles that if you go and get education, you're no longer trusting the Holy Spirit. I've been told if you prepare your sermons and you work ahead before you get in the pulpit, you're not really preaching. I've been told you're not using the authoritative Bible. I've been told a lot of interesting things. Most of the time in writing, because people are too afraid to come and say it to your face, but I've been told some very interesting things over the years. Thankfully, not here. But you've got to remember, my first 11 years, I pastored way up in the Appalachian area. I mean, there were definitely some serpents being handled up in those parts. I'm just going to be straight with y'all. And so I have been told, I've even been told by children who have been indoctrinated with this. You're not really a Baptist. You're not really a preacher. And I'll say, well, until you can learn to read Greek and Hebrew in the languages God chose to write the Bible, don't talk to me, you little snot. <laughs> in love. So my, my point is, I say all of that. And, and quite frankly, some of you ladies here tonight, not to be ugly, but if you got britches on instead of a dress, you wouldn't be considered a good Baptist either. And if you put a little war paint on tonight, thank you very much. You would be considered a heathen. So my, my point in all of that is simply to say that just because there's a label doesn't mean it's indicative of us all. And, and if I'm accused of anything in life or ministry, I want to be said, well, that guy just can't seem to do anything but stick with the Bible. I'd rather just go back to what God says about it, whether it's men and women issues, gender-related, whether it's um, sexuality. It's the reason we've just added the Nashville Statement, because... We are in a culture, in fact, this is the way I'm going to start the Sermon Sunday. We are in a culture that has everything flipped upside down. What was wrong is now right. What was right is now wrong. And, and we're living in a culture war. But the good news is, as Pastor Frank rightly set the stage tonight, God is in control. I'm not sweating the small stuff. I'm on the winning team at the end. And that team's not labeled Baptist. It's labeled Christian. It's labeled those who believe in the Bible. So we, we don't have to worry about these things. And there are some wonderful, fine, godly Lutheran folks, wonderful people that love Jesus and are saved to the bone. So I never want to paint everybody within a group with the same brush. It wouldn't be fair to them. It wouldn't be fair to us. Just like being told, you don't really preach the Bible. Or you went to school, you don't really trust the Holy Spirit. Well, see, I believe the Holy Spirit is so big and wonderful as God that he can inspire me on Monday morning in the study, just like he can inspire me on Sunday morning in the pulpit. I believe God's in control of both of those times. So, that being said, one of the guys that, um, I'll close with this, one of the guys that told me right out of the gate, early in my ministry, that I couldn't really be a preacher and couldn't really be trusting the Lord if I had all that education. He pastored down the road, and he saw our church explode in a good way. 
grow, 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 grow. And guess what I saw? What was it, hon? About seven years after starting in the ministry there, I go to my Ph.D. graduation, and I'm all robed up, and I walk down the row, and all of a sudden, there's that pastor in a robe. I hope he's, I wish he'd be watching this. He's in a robe. He'd just gotten like a Master of Arts, which is a fine thing. He, he went to Southeastern Seminary. He was hardcore fundamentalist, King James only, independent, Baptist, bless God. And he was in a robe, and he grabbed me by the arm because I looked at him like, you're the guy that said education's bad and of the devil. And he said, please don't tell my people I'm here. <laughs> he realized that when he stood in the pulpit, he wasn't really adequately prepared to expound the word of God. And he saw God blessing a church where they took learning the word seriously. And he went on to school and got himself a degree. I was pretty proud. So we want to make sure when we talk about these groups, we remember that there are wide variants and we really do have some wonderful brothers and sisters in the Lutheran church. The Anglican church is a very interesting group. The Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church. We will pick that up next time. Stand with me. Let's pray together. Let's go home. Thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you for being with us. I am so excited about this new study on Sunday. We're going to talk about the real Jesus. There's a lot of little fake plastic Jesuses that people are making in their own image. We're going to talk about the real Jesus on Sunday because John is trying to get to the heart of the matter and he's going to say, let's talk about the real Jesus. And so we're going to start that journey. i got some pretty cool illustrations and it's a really good place to be when you want to start a new book. Get the foundation laid well. We also have um, the new service times. We also have some special things going on. We have a big march down. Okay, a big march. Now this is no reason to stay home. You get that Freedom for the Future card, everybody can at least commit to pray. And a lot of us can commit to do more. We're going to have a march down at the end of each service. And I hope that you'll really at least prayerfully consider joining us on that journey, okay? Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. I'm overwhelmed at what you're doing in your church. In the midst of a, a, a culture war and a chaos like I don't guess any of us have ever seen. It's shocking to me how far and how fast some have fallen from the truth. But God, in love, tempered with grace, let us always be bold to stand on the truth. Let us be uh, ever growing and learning. Let us realize that there are a lot of folks out there that might have a different label, but they believe a lot of the core tenets that we believe. And there are some groups now that claim Christ and, and claim to be Bible-oriented that are going way off the reservation. So let us be slow to speak and quick to listen and learn. And I'm still learning. Every time I dig back into these groups, I'm finding things I didn't know. When I saw that article two, not two days ago, it, sh it was shocking. Or yesterday, it was shocking to me. Well, Lord, I pray that um, we would be true to your word, be true to your calling and your mission as a church, that our school would continue to have your hand a blessing. I'm so thankful for our, our teachers, our administrators, the office personnel, the, the staff that you've given to GCA. There's such a sweet unity there, and they're working so hard and seeing just great things happen with their, their admissions right now and enrollments and retention. And God, we're humbled to have that as part of the ministry of grace. I thank you for them. I thank you for the graduation that they're about to celebrate and, and, and not having tape in the room this year and, and having all family members get to come if they want to come. It's just we think blessings we had taken for granted before. 
we can be thankful for these days. And I'm grateful for the students I hear about, even recently, that have given their life to Jesus. I pray that you would bless us as we go, bring us back with eager anticipation as we start a brand new journey together this Lord's Day. We'll be sure to thank you and praise you and not fret and not worry. In Jesus' name, amen.